last Sunday between the second and third service, my wife sent me a text and said, hey, I have to come back and get the kids at 2 o'clock, so after the third service, uh, you want to run off and get a bite to eat together at our favorite Mexican restaurant. I texted her back and said, sure. So I I left here and and met her at a Mexican restaurant. We had chips and salsa and uh, chicken fajitas. It was had a little date, you know. It was just kind of wonderful. We're sitting there just talking and enjoying a a quiet Sunday afternoon meal. I had energy to to talk since I, 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 in fact, I had a lot to say that day because I hadn't preached on that Sunday, and it was, uh, it was just, it was awesome. I um, went home, and uh, she came here to pick up one of our kids, and I went home. As I came in the door, one of our sons um, met me, and he said, where were you? And I said, oh, I, I was out to, to lunch with, with mom at, at El Rodeo. And he said, what? And I said, yeah, we went out to lunch. It's awesome. We had chips and salsa and fajitas and everything else. And, and he goes, that's not fair. And I said, what do you mean it's not fair? He goes, I'm here eating leftovers, and you guys are at El Rodeo eating chips and salsa and fajitas. I started thinking about that question. Not fair, right? You live in my house, right? It's, it's, it's my food, right? Right? You birth from our bodies, right? I mean, you got pretty good, right? So we just kind of laughed and everything else. And I started to think about this matter of fairness. You know, fairness is, is a part of the fabric of our humanity, isn't it? We have this kind of this fairness doctrine that just is a part of the cultural air that we breathe. I uh, happened to turn on the news this week and saw a verbal kerfuffle between two political people, and they were arguing about whether or not it was fair if you could turn someone's mic off before a hearing was, was done. Or, or some of you, you're so into fairness that you remember as a kid, as, as presents were distributed, you know, as mom and dad distributed presents out, come on, there's some of you, you are counting the presents, right? And kind of evaluating, do they really love me as much as my brother or sister? You see, fairness is a, a really big deal. And today what I want to introduce to you is the idea of fairness as it relates to the book of Romans. Because what we do is we bring the idea of fairness into our study of the Scriptures. And at one level, that's appropriate, because the Old Testament law is largely based upon the idea of fairness. Jesus even talked about fulfilling the law when he said, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. So the idea of fairness is not antithetical to the Bible, but there are limits to this idea of fairness. And what will happen in the book of Romans, if you don't understand the limits of your understanding of fairness, is you will come to texts like Romans 3 or like Romans 9 and 11, and you will find some things that are really challenging, frankly, even alarming, especially as it relates to this matter of fairness. So we're going to walk through this today. Let me set the stage for where we are in our study as to why Paul is talking about this. Prior to chapter 3, Paul has identified in chapter 1 that the righteousness that God demands is the righteousness that he gives. So we can't earn our own salvation. God has to give us the righteousness of Christ. And then in chapter 118, all the way through chapter 2, we learn about the depravity of man. The fact that we are hopeless sinners, that we're unable to save ourselves, that we can't make it on our own spiritually. And then in chapter 2, Paul went through a very clear explanation of the problem of being Jewish when you trust in the law or when you trust in circumcision. 
And in fact, being religious or being Jewish in this context actually makes things worse because you become judgmental of those who don't embrace those things and thereby giving evidence that you really don't understand what true spirituality is anyway. So in, in chapter 2, Paul is, has identified the problem with being Jewish. And he basically says, as it relates to God's righteousness, that one's Jewishness one's possession of the law, one's circumcision really do not matter. And then in chapter 3, he anticipates that some people would hear that and would have objections. And they would hear what Paul has said about God giving us righteousness and then hearing what he would say about Jewishness and say, wait a minute, and Paul, beautifully so, crafts an argument where he anticipates objections and he answers those objections. So what I want to do today is try and show you what those three objections are and then show you how Paul answers it with one particular character quality of God and then draw some conclusions at the end. So what are the objections? Here they are. Let's summarize them and then we'll pick them apart individually. The objections are, first, since Israel was faithless, God must not be faithful. Meaning if God promised that Israel was going to be redeemed, but she didn't, so what do we do with God's promises? Second objection, since unrighteousness displays God's righteousness, it is unrighteous for God to judge us. The argument goes like this, look, my unrighteousness means that you receive a lot of glory because of your righteousness, so why am I held accountable for my unrighteousness if it makes you look so good? Third, since lying and evil produce God's truth and good, then his condemning us is unfair. Sort of an ends justifying the means argument. So these are three objections that Paul anticipates all under this banner of fairness. And let's take a look at each of them to try and figure out what this objection is. Look at each, all three of those at first and then look at the matter of judgment and how that relates and gives us an answer to this issue of fairness. So objection number one is, since Israel was faithless, God must not be faithful. Look at verse one. Then what advantage has the Jew? Paul says that because he spent chapter two identifying that Jewishness is problematic as it relates to righteousness. And some might suggest then, well then what's the point of being Jewish at all? The argument might sound like this. So if keeping the law and circumcision are not central to righteousness, then what's the point of the Jewish people? And for that matter, what's the point of God's plan and the entire Old Testament? If this was all worthless, then why in the world are we Jewish in the first place? So Paul anticipates that argument, and then he answers it in verse 1. Rather, verse 2, he says, or what is the value of circumcision? Here comes the answer in verse 2. Much in every way. So what's interesting here is that Paul doesn't say, yes, you're right, Jewishness doesn't matter. He doesn't say, yes, you're right, Jewishness had really had no point. Instead, he says, much in every way. And then he says, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So to begin with means that there's more that's coming. And in fact, if you were to look ahead in Romans chapter 9, like verses 4 and 5, you would see that Paul identifies the value of being Jewish, not the least of which are his adoption, the glory, the covenants, the law, worship, and promises. So, so Paul is not saying that Jewishness doesn't matter. In fact, he actually affirms Jewishness. 
Now, this opens up a little bit of a theological issue or a little bit of a Pandora's box as it relates to the matter of Israel and the church. And we'll cover this even more when we get into Romans chapter 9, but let me just give you a, a very brief introduction into this. Romans 9 to 11 and throughout the, the whole of the New Testament, there's this challenge with how do we understand Israel? And you need to know that within evangelical Christianity, even within our own church, within our own pastors, and within our eldership, there's a variety of views on this issue. So when I talk about this, we're talking about an intramural discussion, not a matter of if somebody is going to be in heaven or um, if they're not really a Christian. There are three views as it relates to Israel and the church. The first is that when the Bible talks about Israel in the New Testament, the primary view is a a true spiritual Israel that includes both ethnic Jews and ethnic Gentiles. And you can really think of that as really the church has become the new Israel. That's one view, and there's good reasons to take that view. The second view would be, no, that... Israel means here a remnant of believing ethnic Israel will be saved. So that there's like this Israel within Israel, which is true, and that's what Paul is referring to. Or third, and this is my view, that there is a hope of a future national conversion of the people of ethnic Israel. That there's going to be a reestablishment of some kind of the nation of Israel coming back to a relationship with their Messiah. I hold this view because I believe that God, in Paul's day and in our own, still has a plan for ethnic and national Israel. And while I don't think that plan is fulfilled today in the the Israel that was established in 1948, that gathering may be a harbinger of yet what is to come in the future. And part of the reason why I think this is because of what I see in verse 2. And granted, my understanding of this issue informs a bit my interpretation of verse 2, and yet also verse 2 seems to indicate that there's something about Jewishness related to the oracles of God. What does that word oracles mean? Well, it means the word of God more than just the law. It means, in my view, the promises of God. And if you look at the text, verse 3 says, and what if some were unfaithful? There's a connection between faithfulness and those promises. And so I take it to mean that what's in view in verse 2 is the Abrahamic covenant, a promise that God made to Abraham that Israel would be blessed and would be his chosen people, and that also part of that Abrahamic covenant included national identity and also land that went along with that. And I think that will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. So there's something Paul says here about being Jewish. He says that Jewishness doesn't, he doesn't say that Jewishness doesn't matter, but rather he says there's something significant about being Jewish. So he actually affirms it. In other words, that chapter 2, for all the negative things that Paul had to say about Israel, doesn't negate his plan for the people of God, for the nation of Israel. So just hold that thought, and we'll come back to it a year and a half from now when we look at Romans 9 and 11. Um, whether you think it's Israel, uh, as a nation, Israel that's a spiritual Israel or uh, Israel that's encompassing some sort of remnant, all three views agree on this one thing, and that is that the Jewish people were unfaithful. Everyone agrees on that. The conclusion or the objection that Paul is trying to address is this. Since God made these promises and Israel wasn't faithful to them, then maybe God isn't true. Maybe his promises aren't real, and maybe God isn't really faithful. 
The objection is this, that the Jewish failure to believe in Jesus as the Messiah means that God's plans must have failed, that God's promise to Israel was not only unfulfilled, that it actually wasn't true. And so therefore, according to this objection, God would be unfair to judge Israel for their unfaithfulness when in fact his promise wasn't true anyways. That's the objection. Now that's not true, and we'll come back to it, but that's the objection. Here's the second objection, and it's this. Since unrighteousness displays God's righteousness, it is unrighteous for God to judge us. Look at verse 5. But if our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. So this argument is a bit of a, um, a setup in saying, look, if my unrighteousness becomes the backdrop upon which your gospel is seen and you're glorified and magnified because of my unrighteousness, then why am I judged for something that makes you glorious? How fair is that? It seems that God would be unfair to punish people for the very thing that ends up glorifying him. So there's a charge of injustice. This, by the way, is very similar to what we see in Romans chapter 9 and verse 14 where Paul says, what shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? So Romans 9 and 11 raise this issue. So does Romans chapter 3. And the argument or the objection is, if a righteousness shows the righteousness of God, how fair is it or how right is it for God to punish helpless, unrighteous sinners when their righteousness is in fact part of his plan to make his righteousness known to the world? So the first objection related to the truthfulness of God. The second objection relates to his righteousness. And all of this is about fairness. So first objection, second objection. Now let's look at the third The third objection is really an ends-justifying-the-means sort of argument. Verse 7. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? So the first thing we see here is this. Why does God hold me accountable for sin if it's impossible for me to do anything else and if it results in him receiving glory? If my lying results in him being known as truthful, then why am I held accountable for my lie? The second thing that he says, uh, verse 8, and why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying. So as Paul went around and preached the gospel, people heard the gospel and said, well, that makes sense. If, If God's forgiven me of all my sins, past, present, and future, if there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, then... Well, your gospel means that people just go on sinning and do whatever they want, and God's just going to keep giving grace. If if God gives grace to sinners, then why not just be a big-time sinner, and God's grace will continue and continue and continue. And by the way, Paul wrote Romans chapter 6 to address that issue. So if you want to dial into that very specific question, just read Romans chapter 6. very clear how Paul tries to answer that. But the point of this objection is simply that our disobedience produced good results. So our disobedience resulted in God being glorified by his own actions, and therefore any judgment by God seems to be unfair. If bad produces good, then what's the problem? Now, underneath all three of these objections is the belief that what would be truly fair would be this. 
If God just set up the rules of life and told everyone in the whole world, this is how you are to live, and if you live this way, you can earn eternal life, and then just turned us loose, and whoever worked hardest and got to the top of their moral class, that, those particular people were welcomed into heaven. That would be fair from our standpoint. But the problem is, is with that level or that kind of fairness, when you climb to the top of that moral mountain... Guess who gets all the honor and all the glory? You do. And that's the problem. You see, underneath the issue of fairness, there are more significant things. So while fairness is legitimate, and you should read the Bible somewhat through a fair lens, you need to realize that fairness has limitations to it. While there needs to be a sense of fairness in the community, and even fairness in how we treat one another, there's a limit to fairness. Fairness is not absolute. What I want to show you is how Paul addresses that. I would suggest to you that underneath fairness, or the more foundational thing to the concept of fairness, is the reality of who God is. And in this text, Paul highlights who God is by the use of the word or the concept of judgment. So Paul appeals to who God is by virtue of this issue of judgment. Let's see this in the text. After each objection, Paul raises the issue of judgment. Look at verse 4. After saying, by no means, which is a great little word. In the Greek, it sounds like this. Me genoita. It's a strong word. No way. And Paul uses it throughout the um, book of Romans. I've listed some in the footnotes. It'd be great for you just to look at all the ways that Paul uses me genoita. It's a ridiculous statement. By no means. And then he says this, Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. So notice that Paul, in answering the objection, appeals to something greater than the objection itself. He appeals to the fact that God is true. And even though everyone else were a liar, God would still be true. And then he quotes Psalm 51 that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. See the word judged? We have judgment. And that's a psalm, by the way, about the failure of David, a man after God's own heart. It was what David said when God revealed his sin and punished him for his sin or disciplined him for his sin, in a sense appealing to the fact that God is just and judgment is an important aspect of who and what God is. So he appeals to judgment in verse 4. Verse 6 It shows up here, by no means, there it is again, for then how could God judge the world? And then it also shows up in verse 8. As some people slanderously charge us with saying, he says their condemnation is just. So in each case, with each objection, we have an appeal to judgment, an appeal to judgment. In the first objection, the charge that God is unfaithful because of Israel's failure What Paul does is state that God is true even though everyone else are liars in verse 4. He quotes a text about David's moral failure to show that even when people are unfaithful, like David, God is still true and still just. In other words, his counter is even when people aren't faithful, God is still just. God's judgment will prove that. The second thing We see in verse 6, regarding the charge that God is unrighteous to hold people accountable, 
for something that makes him righteous, what Paul then does is appeals to their understanding of judgment in general. He says this, For then how could God judge the world? That's a very curious phrase. I did some research on that phrase. What does it mean? Why would Paul say, For then how could God judge the world? And what he's doing, what I discovered, is that Paul is appealing to something so foundational in a Jew's mind that it would reflect the character and the essence of God. He's appealing to their sense that God is indeed going to judge the world. Tom Schreiner, in his commentary on this text, says this. This was helpful to me. He says, Modern people are often eager to accept the idea that no one will be judged and all will be saved. But it would be unthinkable for the Jews of the Second Temple period. They would presuppose that God had to judge the world, especially the Gentiles who were outside of the covenant. If Gentiles would escape the judgment, and that's what that text is referring to, the covenant made with Israel would mean nothing at all. Their whole history as God's elect people would be an illusion and a mockery. So what I found is that, and then I thought about Exodus, and this totally made sense, that salvation for Israel and judgment went hand in hand. And if you think about our study of Exodus, this makes sense. When God delivered his people out of Egypt, he not only saved them and delivered them out, but he also judged Pharaoh and the Egyptians in the process, right? In fact, Exodus 7 and verse 4 says this, I will bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. So for Israel, salvation and judgment were absolutely intertwined. In fact, I think the Bible, not just for Jewish people, but for all of us, judgment and salvation are absolutely linked together. So this is really important to note what is happening here. What Paul does to address the issue of fairness, when something about God and his plan was not really understood or known or seemed mysterious, what Paul does is he appeals to something more foundational than the matter of fairness. He appealed to God's judgment. And he appealed to God's judgment because it illustrated who God is. Third objection, the charge that the gospel is about doing evil so that good will come. Paul simply says, their condemnation is just. Romans 6, he he completely dismantles that argument, but Paul does not go into great detail here as a defense of the gospel or a refutation of the idea that a person's life is an effective or a person's sinful life is an effective means of God being more gracious. Paul simply says that this charge is so ridiculous that he just appeals to God's judgment once again. He says their condemnation is just. It'd be similarly ridiculous if a police officer pulled you over on the way home from church and as he or she came up to the window, you said to them, you know, you wouldn't even have a job if I didn't speed, right? That's not going to help you, right? The only reason you have a job is because of people like me, right? You're like, what? Here's your ticket. I mean, it would just be like, what? It's just such a ridiculous argument that it's just, here's the fine, right? So that's, in a sense, what Paul is doing. Their condemnation is just. So hopefully you've been able to follow this. Let me review. Paul assumes that there will be Jewish people who will question the fairness of God at multiple levels. He knows that people are prone to see the work of God and they are prone to process it through their human lens of fairness. So how does he answer that? 
What he does is he appeals to something more foundational than fairness. If I could get one thing in your heart and mind today, it would be this. There is something more foundational to life than fair. If you can bring that to the Bible, if you can bring that to marriage, if you can bring that to suffering, if you can bring that to parenting, if you can... Teenagers, bring that up into your becoming young adults, children, if you can bring that up in the context of home, that there's something bigger than fair. And what's bigger than fair is God. Who God is, what He is like, and our ability to rest in that. In other words, there are some questions or issues in life that are not solved By things making sense to us. Do you know that there are some things in life that are never going to make sense to you? These things are solved by appealing to the fact that God is not like us. You see, there are truths in the Bible that are designed to make us realize one stunning and also disconcerting truth. And I think there are things in the Bible to send us this message. And the message is this. You are not God. If you completely could understand all the reasons why in life, if you understood every single text in the Bible, if there was no mystery and no gaps, if there was no things that just kind of blew your mind every once in a while, then at the end of the day, if you possessed all knowledge and knew everything there was to know about everything in life, guess what? You would be God. And so there are texts like these in the Bible to remind us who we really are and that there's something more foundational to life than fairness. Now, we'll see this more when we get to Romans 9 through 11. But let me show you one illustration of this in that chapter. Romans 9 is about the sovereignty of God in salvation and in particular about the great mysterious doctrine of election where God chooses people to be saved. And there are so many hard questions with that issue. And yet, look what Paul does in Romans 9. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. That's a hard passage to get your head around. You will say to me then, well, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And then look at Paul's answer. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? You see what Paul appeals to? So in Romans 3, he appeals to who God is by virtue of judgment. In Romans 9, he appeals to who God is by virtue of what? Creation. You see? There are things underneath fairness that are more foundational, more significant things that you can't always put together, pieces that don't always necessarily fit. There are things in life and there are things in the Bible that are greater than fairness. Or to state it a little differently, fairness is not the ultimate answer for what is right and what is wrong. God is. It's really important because some of you have had really unfair things happen in your lifetime. And you're still wrestling with the issue of, look, this happened and yet God is good. How, how, does, how does that work out? Or there are things that have taken place in your um, life in the last number of weeks that are hard, that are painful. And you look at that and just like, what? I, I don't see any point to this. Hmm. Fairness is not the ultimate answer for 
what is right and what is wrong. God is. And the book of Romans aims to show us that the ultimate purpose in life is the glory of God. And there are times in the Bible and in life when that objective, the glory of God, is so beyond our thinking that the only appropriate answer is, okay, you're God, and I'm not, and I get it. And I think Romans 9, 10, 11, Romans 3, and suffering and hardship and loss and pain, those are in the world to remind us that we are not God. And I'm telling you, if you can bring that lens to the Bible, if you can bring that lens to life, if, if you can bring that lens to suffering and hardship, you, you will be free in a way that you wouldn't be if you held so tightly on fairness. It's got to make sense to me. It's got to make sense to me. It's got to make sense to me. So let me give you some pastoral thoughts, how to think about this issue of fairness. First, I want you simply to realize this morning that our human default is towards this fairness doctrine. It does not require any training or teaching for our children to have an immediate passion for what is fair. No one taught my kids the idea of fairness. You see, when someone gets something a little more for dinner and you get a little less, that's called unfair. And when that happens, you ought to be mad about that. That was just inborn in them, right? They see what other people have and they want it, they want it, they want it, right? There's just something, what they have, I want because they shouldn't have it. They should, I should have the same thing that they have. Secondly, I just want you to realize that this fairness reality is something that we bring with us into our study of the Scriptures and even into our relationship with God. And I think, frankly, it affects us far more than we realize. We come to the text, we come to life with a fairness lens, and honestly, that is often where we get in trouble. It's the fairness issues that really not only cause perplexing questions, but also a lot of heartache. Third, you need to know that the Bible is filled with understanding gaps. So there's all kinds of things that we can know in the Scriptures, but we don't know everything. And there are understanding gaps built in. As you study the Bible, as you look at life, you need to be really careful that you not assume that you'll be able to understand how everything works or that you'll be able to make sense of everything. There are things that are in the Bible and things that are in your life that are meant to blow your mind and to remind you, you are not God. When I understood this, this was so helpful. I read the book of Job, and if you were here back in 2008 when we studied it, or 2009, whenever it was, the beautiful thing about Job is this. He's a man under pressure. He has all sorts of suffering, and it's really because of a contest between Satan and God, and yet God never tells Job the real story of what's going on. Instead, what God does is point Job to himself. He says, where were you when I formed the foundations of the earth? Were you there? Where were you when I laid out the sea? Do you play with Leviathan in the ocean? Can you put a ring in his nose and pull him here and there? Do you do this, Job? What did God do? Instead of telling Job why, he talked about who. And that became the basis for an important tagline for my life and for our church, which is this, that the who question is far more satisfying than the why question. There are understanding gaps in life. Fourth, 
The solution to those gaps, the solution to the fairness gap, is God himself. In other words, it is not always that things are going to make sense to you. But rather, it is that there are things in life that you can simply trust that God knows what he's doing. And I don't know how this works out. Somehow it does. But in the middle of that, I'm just going to trust that you're God and I'm not. And if you don't buy into that and you're a parent, I would bring you back to conversations like this that you've had with your children when they were little. When you said to your child, when maybe they were five or six or maybe 18, (laughs) hey, it's time to go to bed. And, and little children especially are like, time to go to bed? Well, are they going to bed? You know this conversation, right? No, honey, they're not going to bed. How come? That's not fair. How come they get to stay up and I don't? And then what we do next is really a fascinating study in, in parental psychosis. We try and rationalize with a five-year-old. Well, you see, honey, you need sleep at night. And does that ever work? As they go, oh, yeah, that makes sense, mama. And they, no, they never do that, right? But yet we try, right? Trying all sorts of rational, tomorrow's gonna to be a very busy day, so you know, like, they don't care, they just want it now, now, now. And eventually that discussion goes on and on and on and on and on, and then how do you solve it? Here's how you solve it. You say, honey, you need to go to bed and listen to me because I am your parent. First service, first service, someone said boss. I was like, no, okay, boss. <laughs> boss? Boss? I'm the boss. All right, whatever. So, parent, right? Parent, I'm your parent. Why do we appeal to that? Because that's who we are, and they need to understand that we know what's best for them. And an appeal to that position of authority means I know what you don't know, and your little mind can't comprehend all of the reasons why you need to go to bed, right? Now, and it's the exact same way with God. There are things that he knows that our little minds could never handle, nor could we ever understand, and the understanding gaps in life are filled with God himself. And that's what Paul does in Romans chapter 3. He appeals to the essence of God by virtue of judgment. And then finally, when you're really struggling with the issue of fairness, and you're like, life isn't fair, this fair thing is hard, can I just remind you that the gospel isn't fair of all people in the world who ought to get fairness is not the issue christians should if you're not a christian here's what i mean i mean that the good news of the gospel is this that god took jesus's death an innocent man who died he takes the innocent man's death and applies it to guilty sinners instead of giving guilty sinners what they deserve he forgives them and gives the righteous man all of the punishment that guilty sinners deserve the essence of the cross is unfairness at an eternal and irrevocable level the gospel fundamentally is good news because it's not fair it's awesome news it's unfair news It's awesome, unfair news. And so you see, when you see life and the Bible through this lens, it it begins to change some things. And what Romans 3 does is it shows us the Bible's desire to hallow God and to humble us. So the book of Romans is about 
God's righteousness being revealed for you to see it in all of the kaleidoscope of color and tension that it really is. And when you see it like that, you cannot help but understand why Paul wrote this in Romans 11 when he said, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable are His ways. What is he saying there? You know what he's saying? He's saying, you are God and I'm not. So Romans 3 is in the Bible in order to help us with where we live today. Not just with the objections that Paul talked about, but also because of the fact that some of you are here today and you're walking through a really difficult, unfair situation and you need to hear the tension of Romans 3 as God's grace to you. That at the end of the day, it may not all make sense to you, but God is still true and He's still sovereign. And somehow, in the midst of all of this, God has a plan for your life because He's God and you're not. The gospel is fundamentally unfair, and thank God it's unfair. And that changes how we see the lens of everything, including texts like Romans 3 and Romans chapter 9, that the end game of the Bible and all of creation is to make much of God and for us to fall on our face and worship Him. And hard texts and hard circumstances, they help us to see, they help us to see the beauty of what God is like and how we are not like Him. How unsearchable are your ways? How unsearchable are your ways? Aren't you glad that God was unfair in the gospel? Father, would you help us now to live out the tension of a passage like this? Or I, I can imagine there are people here who are living in the middle of this unfair world who would look at you and what you've done and wonder, Lord, how does this, how does this even work? And would you, Lord, just help them to take one additional step today towards trusting you and realizing, God, I can trust you even though things don't make sense. For a husband and wife who just want a baby so bad and yet it's not happening. A single adult who just either wants to be married or to have a friend that cares. For people in the middle of cancer, loss in the past that just doesn't seem to make any sense. And a thousand other pains. Lord, thank you that while we can't reconcile all these things, you can and one day will. So, Lord, thank you that the gospel is the basis of our understanding of this word fair. <laughs> I know how we need your help to understand it and live it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there will be some folks up here afterwards who would um, love to be able to pray for you if you're in one of those unfair zones. All right. Keep memorizing Romans 8. God bless you guys. Love you. Thanks for coming.